You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This week on the University Series, we are speaking with Dr. Cody Morris from Salve Regina University. Dr. Morris is an assistant professor and the program director of Applied Behavior Analysis. And his overarching goal of research and clinical focus is to improve the implementation of assessment and treatment practices related to severely challenging behavior. To this end, he has two major concentrations. The first and primary concentration is improving assessment and treatment methodologies for severely challenging behavior in applied settings. The second concentration is addressing organizational issues related to the implementation of assessment and treatment. Dr. Morris has extensive experience assessing and treating behaviors in an applied setting that include group homes, family homes, day programs, schools, treatment centers, and juvenile detention centers. Within these settings, he has assessed and treated challenging behaviors of children ages 3 to 18 with and without diagnoses, as well as adults ages 18 to 70 plus with developmental disabilities and or mental illness. So without further ado, Dr. Cody Morris. Today, I am very excited to be talking with Dr. Cody Morris from Salve Regina in Rhode Island. And so thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, Shona. Yeah, and I'm extra excited because Cody and I were in grad school together back in the day. (laughs) And before we go off on any of those kinds of tangents, which I will not include. Oh, good. I am going to pass it over to him to give a just a general overview of the program. Thank you. And before I get started, just so I remember to say this, thank you so much for putting this resource together for people. This is an, I think, an unbelievable idea of giving something, putting something out there in a way that people are going to be able to consume it and learn about programs. I think back to when we were in grad school together and and just before that, thinking about what programs am I going to look at? It's so tedious and difficult to look through different websites and what websites do I even look at? You know, like mainstream psychology, they have like the Kaplan books and and books like that. They're going to lead people through different programs. What does behavior analysis have? Nothing like that. So phenomenal resource. Thank you so much for putting it together just for the field. And then, of course, you know, we're honored to be part of this from a Salt Lake Regina standpoint. So thank you. Well, thank you. Yes. And even though you brought up the websites, there's one thing that I have found out very quickly from reaching out to universities and colleges is that you can only learn so much from a website. Absolutely. So so I'm very excited to learn more about this program because I know a little bit of the history of the school in general, but I'll let you kind of give the overview of the specific program. Yeah, thanks. So The ABA program at Salve Regina University is a 36 credit, 12 course program designed to help students build a strong foundation in the science of behavior analysis. We really emphasize the science piece in our program. We're very proud to do that. And ultimately we help students develop the skills needed to effectively and ethically implement compassionate behavior analytic services. Of course, the program is a verified course sequence through ABAI. It's located in in beautiful, beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. We have practicum opportunities sort of spread throughout Rhode Island, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. 
our courses are in person, but we are mindful of people's lives. And so we do schedule them to be flexible. And so that people who have full-time jobs are able to attend the program. And then in addition to our traditional master's program, we also have an accelerated program for Solvay undergraduates that allows them to begin taking graduate courses in their senior year so that they can finish their master's program in a, a little bit over a year. It's not exactly a four plus one, just with the 36 credits and, and sort of the course sequence of those things, but it's, it's about a four plus one. And that's sort of a, a general overview of the program. Well, and that's really exciting because I learned about Salve years ago, but for a completely different reason and for a completely different program. And I know that from social media, when I saw that, you know, you took the job there, I was really excited because I knew that at some point in time, that meant I was going to be able to reach out to you for this. Okay. And so I know some of your history, but what about, like, who are the faculty and what are you researching? What is really that science piece that you mentioned in the overview? For sure. So right now, Salve has two full-time BCBAD faculty. It's myself and Emma Grauerholtz fisher who's from the University of Florida. She studied with Tim Vollmer. And we're adding another full-time faculty member that's a BCBAD level with Stephanie Jones, who's finishing up her PhD at West Virginia University of Eclair St. Peter right now. And so we have a, a, a sort of an overlapping but different research interest between the three of us. And in addition to the three sort of behavior analyst faculty, I, I do wanna point out that we're sort of housed in the Department of Psychology with numerous other faculty who are incredibly supportive of our ABA program. They're phenomenal colleagues. And, and then also we've, we've also made connections in our Department of Education. And I bring that up because the reality is sometimes programs are housed in colleges or universities that are less than friendly in terms of their interactions with other departments and, and faculty members. And the entire university here is just filled with phenomenal colleagues, phenomenal faculty that really help enrich our program, whether that be through sort of collaborations or, or sort of connections. Sometimes our students will sort of take two, dual master's degrees and things like that. So we're, I think, not necessarily unique in that aspect, but we're very blessed and, and fortunate to be in a situation like that. In terms of specific research, I'll sort of summarize to the best of my ability what, what the other folks are working on, both Emma and Stephanie. So Emma, uh, her primary interests are in, in assessing and teaching chain tasks. So how different baseline methods can affect performance, under which types of conditions prompt dependence can emerge, and the evaluating different chain methods based on individual learner or task characteristics. She's also into staff management systems and she's got a couple of recent papers focused on that topic. And then she also has interest in a category she calls, quote, considerations regarding the scope of practice and interdisciplinary involvement. And so for example, 
she's interested in assessing and treating pediatric feeding disorders and understanding what type of specialized training is required for something as nuanced as pediatric feeding. Stephanie, on the other hand, is interested in evaluating treatments for severe behavior that are realistic for caregivers to implement. She does this by assessing the effects of reduced integrity implementation of behavioral interventions in laboratory and applied settings, identifying strategies to increase the likelihood of treatments that will remain robust despite treatment integrity errors or other treatment challenges, and disseminating behavior analytic interventions to non-traditional populations. Stephanie has got a history of doing things in schools, clinics, laboratories, and therapeutic horsemanship facilities, which is, is quite unique, I think. In terms of my own interest, so my background's in severe problem behavior, and I suppose data collection integrity, that was what my thesis and dissertation was on within the realm of severe problem behavior. But I guess my, my major research interests have sort of developed into or evolved, I suppose, into improving the practice of behavior analysis very broadly. So that might look at what are the procedures that we publish research about and how in the world do we translate those into something that someone can actually do, right? So if we look at something like doing a functional analysis for PICO, those studies tend to be very rigorous, which is phenomenal. How do we make those doable in, in real life settings? Of course, with, with numerous safety precautions or something like that, but how do we translate that to, to doing that in practice? And so, you know, that would be one sort of theme of my research. I also enjoy looking at what I call incidental sort of research projects. There's probably a better term out there for this, honestly, but in the work that I do, the consultations that I do, the practicum support that I do, when we're working on a case and we find something that is interesting, turning that into a research project and and building out from there. So it's not necessarily that I'm sitting around going, okay, I read, you know, these latest research articles focus on functional analyses. I want to answer a question related to that. I'm more in the clinic looking at the clients going, okay, what do we need to do to help this person? Let's look at the recent research on FAs. Okay, there seems to be a shortcoming there that's uh, relevant to this client. Let's answer the question while we help the client. And so I've got a few recent pubs uh, within that sort of domain. So I've got a paper on the effective strategies of parent-delivered instruction, which is, again, just really focused on how do we improve the practice of behavior analysis. I've got a paper that I'm honestly very proud of. This is maybe my favorite paper right now on risk factors of client mistreatment. So in centers, schools, whatever, what are the risk factors that can potentially lead to client mistreatment? And I think that's an extremely important topic that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about. And then I've got a a paper coming out soon focused on the history of the treatment of LGBTQ plus by behavior analysts, which I think is an extremely important topic for behavior analysts to be well aware of. And then finally, I'll say that I'm starting to dabble in something that you're very familiar with, which is I, maybe what we would call dissemination science, which is I've just begun uh, creating, producing, and hosting a, a podcast called Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast, 
which partners with the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice to review in depth the articles that are coming out in that journal. No, and that's all very, very exciting. And I think that you may be honing in on someone who, mu- who once said, you know, if you find something interesting, just drop everything and study it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> right when you said that, I was like, you trying to, you trying to like quote Skinner here, Cody? Um, yeah, unintentionally, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, it's just so ingrained in me. Yeah, I guess for me, both of us coming from a phenomenal research program, we, we were really trained very well to consume research, to be able to produce very rigorous research. And that is unbelievably important for our field. Absolutely. But moving to an area that has less resources, that we don't have the Ron Van Houtens and the Al Polings and the Stephanie Petersons and the Wayne Fuquays and, and all these phenomenal faculty that Western Michigan has teaching us how to do research and consume research that a lot of practitioners don't know how to take that research and translate it. And so that's been my new passion as cool for those of us who were fortunate enough to be in a situation where that translation was explicitly taught and supported. What about the rest of the folks, right? We need those, 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 intermediate articles. It's like, hey, you know, here's what all these phenomenal researchers are doing. Here's how you might consider actually implementing it. And here's how we're going to make that doable for you. My students that are in this program and and, in other programs, they all have the same drive interest to learn behavior analysis that any of the people that go to the major, major programs go to. And so what I'm particularly interested in now is how do we give what these huge, large, historic programs are giving to the students in small, intimate programs like Solve Every Junior University. Yeah, and I honestly think that these smaller programs actually, depending on, you know, how they're set up, even compared to the big programs, could have a leg up. Right. Well, we're more flexible. Right. Right. And, 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 and we're, we're, on sort of newer research topics. We're not as ingrained in in some of the older, more historic projects and things like that. And so we're smaller, yes, but I think that that smaller feel is more intimate, it's more connection to the students. It gives us more flexibility and being able to pivot to the the needs of the field and all those things. So I, I love this job. I love Salva Regina University. I'm very honored to be part of it. And I think that these newer programs, these smaller programs, I think is the future of the field. Yeah, I know that you mentioned the size of the program and you know, you're know you growing right now as well, bringing on more faculty members. What can the students expect when coming to Salve and the classes and the faculty? And what what is kind of that student experience that they can expect with a smaller program? Well, with a small program, they can expect really an intimate connection to, to the professors, the faculty. Not only do the faculty obviously teach the courses, but we're also involved in the practicum experiences. So right now, I'm heavily involved with, with our primary practicum sites and continually 
searching to develop more and more practicum opportunities, community connections, et cetera. And so we're very involved with basically every step of the process. So, you know, my students see me in class, I'm their advisor, I'm the director of the program. So if there are issues related to that stuff, that they're speaking with me and in terms of practicum, I'm quite literally there being part of the supervision process, modeling things. At least once a week, I go out to do assessments, treatments, and, and, I'm, and I'm working with my students in that capacity. So it's a very high touch program. They're gonna, you're gonna see us constantly, which really helps in terms of developing that mentorship model. Salve's program is a cohort model. It's not like some of the larger programs that are more what I think is called mentor model, where you go and you enter a lab. Right. So where I went, Western Michigan University, went to a specific lab. I'm working with Stephanie Peterson. Yes, there are people who entered the program at the same time that I did. I'm not really as connected to those folks. I'm connected to the people within my lab who may be at different sort of levels in the program. Some people are finishing up their Ph.D. or like me, brand new to, to the master's program. Salve's program is a cohort. But it's still really emphasizes that mentorship relationship. So we'll, we'll be able to have that level of connectiveness that you would see in like a mentor program because we are mindful about how many students we let in in any particular cohort. And again, we're involved with many aspects of the education beyond the classroom. What about those practicum sites? I know you mentioned all over Rhode Island. And just for anybody who's listening to this, Rhode Island is not that large. <laughs> so just a heads up. That's um, true. I yeah. should have thought about that. When I say all over Rhode Island, that doesn't mean you're driving everywhere. Rhode Island, from my understanding, as long as you don't hit traffic, I think you can drive from the top to the bottom in an hour. So when I was a consultant in Michigan, I, I covered one county and it was, sometimes we would dabble into the surrounding counties a little bit. I covered more space consulting than I did that would make up the entire state of Rhode Island. So it's a small, intimate little state for sure. And one of our primary practicum sites is Pathway Strategic Learning Center, which is a specialized school serving ages three to 22. And there's actually two separate schools. So they have a school for the sort of the younger group and a school for the older group. Pathways is part of a, a larger organization that provides almost the entire full lifespan of services for individuals with developmental disabilities. And so they have early intervention programs. They have that school that I was just mentioning. They have adult day programs and group home options. And so, and they honestly, they probably have even more options that I'm not fully aware of, but those are sort of the ones that I am most familiar with and interested in. And so right now our primary opportunities for students at that organization or is working within the school. So doing things focused on, on problem behavior, skill acquisition, everything that you would expect in a specialized school for individuals with developmental disabilities. And then our second practicum site is, is Bradley Hospital, which to my understanding is actually the first psychiatric hospital for children in the United States at least that I'm aware of. That's, that's what my understanding is of, of the history of that program. Within that hospital, they have numerous, numerous programs. I, I couldn't even begin to list everything that they have services-wise. 
but there's a, a, a day autism center or partial hospital is maybe what you call it, autism center that we partner with to have practicum students participate in, 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 in those types of services as well. In addition to those two, I'm continuously reaching out to different community partners. Um, we're, we're working on developing a partnership with a public school district that'll be nearby that we're excited about and developing a pretty unique program there. But it's sort of, we're just fleshing that out. So I can't speak too much about that. But we're, we're, we're expanding our clinical opportunities to give people sort of a full range of, of options that they can begin to specialize in. Well, and that's really exciting too, because even for, this is one thing that I always like to look at is the types of practicum opportunities that students could be getting. And sometimes with smaller programs, they can sometimes be limited. But I know, like knowing you personally, your history, right when I heard about the first site, I was like, oh, that's right up your alley. Yeah. You've done a ton of that stuff in the past. And so that's perfect. And I know that honestly, probably the smaller size of Rhode Island can help facilitate that growth in getting students into more and different sites because more of the state is accessible. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very accessible. And for whatever reason, behavior analysis has not really been as developed in this particular state than you would see with its neighbors, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and some other states. And so it seems to me that people are just now learning about the benefits of behavior analysis here. So it's an exciting place to be in terms of growth opportunity, people who are interested in collaborating in those sort of opportunities. Because we're a smaller program, there's more opportunity to go around. You have three faculty members who are really beginning their academic careers, who are very highly motivated to contribute to research and to, to, to create other opportunities and, and, and experiences. And because it's a small program, there's a lot of us recruiting various people to, to participate in things like that. And so there, there can be a, a lot of really unique and, and, and fun experiences. As I mentioned before, I, I have a, a podcast that I'm helping produce and, and host right now, and my students I recruit to help with that. So that's sort of a unique experience. And then, of course, any and all research that we work on as well. And that's really exciting because I know that some of the other schools I've talked to, like the faculty are part of the research, but, or sorry, the faculty are part of a podcast or run a podcast, but they don't necessarily bring in their students to it. Uh, my students do, I, I, anything I do, my students do. That's my whole philosophy is, and it's not to simply outsource mm-hmm. time. It's that if I'm gonna do something and I'm surrounded by people who wanna learn how to do it, you guys are coming with me, right? It, it, maybe in some cases I'm just simply modeling and you're just literally watching me do something or, you know, in, in a, when I can, getting people actively involved, right? Um, I don't do anything by myself anymore. I have no, nothing I do by myself. Maybe great, obviously, I do by myself. But other than that, everything, people are coming along and we're sharing those experiences and those opportunities. Getting all of those different types of experience, experiences for students, I think, 
is probably going to be one of the best things that they can do. Absolutely. And they're interested in it, right? The, the students, newer generations of students are all about podcasts and getting information from podcasts. In fact, when I first got here and I was talking about, oh, read this and do this, like what podcasts can we listen to that's associated with this? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't listen to that many behavior analytic podcasts, to be honest. I'm more of an audiobook kind of person, but you know, that's what they're interested in. And we want to tap into that, right? They have a, a, a large amount of knowledge about how to communicate via podcast and the desire to be part of something like that and to help disseminate it in those ways. And the reality is we need to understand where people are coming from, why people are so interested in podcasts and be able to give them the information in other ways, you know, for, for my particular podcast, it's associated with specific articles, right? Somebody publishes a paper in behavior analysis and practice. I want to go through that paper with that person. And it's, it's not to replace the article. And I don't know that we're ever going to be in a place where we can provide that level of detail that you never, you don't need to read research articles anymore, but it's to supplement it. It's ideally to give people enough information to be able to operate on and hopefully to draw people's interest into coming back to that article and going, yeah, when they were talking about their methods, that was interesting. I want to go back and I want to read that to better understand it and those sort of things. No, that's really, really exciting because just like you said, I think making research more accessible and more applicable mm -hmm. to a lot of these practitioners is going to be something that is going to help immensely in the future because not everybody works for a university or pays for memberships to have easy access to journals right. and this research. So I know that we've talked about the faculty, the practicum, and the practicum kind of got into the student experience in the area about Rhode Island. This might be a really good time to kind of talk about Rhode Island just in general and kind of expand on that a little bit more. We talked about the size of Rhode Island, but I mean, I have personally seen the campus. I mean, can you explain the area? Yeah. Listeners and kind of, you know, Absolutely. how cool the campus is. The, the campus, we're not over-exaggerating when we say it's one of, if not the most beautiful campuses that you can possibly imagine. It's on the Atlantic Ocean coast. It's, in, it's part of and sort of encapsulated by this beautiful um, Gilded Age mansion arrangement along the, the coast. So Salve's primary academic buildings are actually Gilded Age mansions that were donated to the Sisters of Mercy who created Salve Virginia University right next door to the campus, which again is along the coast. So you, if you ever traveled to Newport, Rhode Island, you might do something called the Cliff Walks, which is this beautiful scenic walk along the ocean. Salve is literally on the, the Cliff Walks. One of the major attractions of the Cliff Walk in Newport in general is a, is a mansion called the Breakers, which was uh, created by the Vanderbilts, which is an extremely wealthy family during the Gilded Age. And it's literally right next door, right? So you go like Salve Building, Salve Building, Salve Building, the Breakers. And it's beautiful. Pictures are worth a thousand words. Do yourself a favor and, and Google it or visit it. I mean, it's just beautiful. And so Newport... This is this island community that 
was sort of really come to age in the Gilded Age. And so there's there's all these beautiful mansions spread out throughout Newport, but it's this beautiful quaint town. It's got a, a amazing wharf with restaurants and shops. And it's just what you expect when you think quaint, beautiful New England island town. And, and that's where Salve is. If we think about Rhode Island more broadly in terms of getting out and exploring, we also have Providence, Rhode Island, which is the, the major city here, which again is just a, a beautiful city with all sorts of sort of uh, culture within the city, restaurants, diverse, uh, diverse restaurants, different sort of art exhibits. There's this thing called the Fire on the Water, which they do in the summertime, which is it's a really cool event to be part of um, and to watch. But basically, they have these pyres on the on the river that they light, and it's this this really big uh, event that's pretty neat to see. And we're in between. New York and Boston. We're like, I don't know, time-wise, maybe an hour, hour and a half from Boston. And we're like two, two and a half hours from New York. And so if you're into like big, big cities, not that far from either one of those locations. If you're like me and you're into nature, you get the whole coast here, which Rhode Island is called the ocean state. And the, the idea is like, you're never more than like 20 minutes or something like that from the coast. And so there are all these beautiful coastal hikes if you're into like mountains and things which is something that i'm into camping in the mountains you're not that far from the green mountains the white mountains and, and vermont and new hampshire perspectively and so i i personally go up to vermont new hampshire quite a bit so you know we're like three three and a half hours from getting into mountains and, and sort of uh, major wilderness and i can 100 percent speak to the beauty of rhode island just in general and the accessibility of it. I did not get a chance to go to Boston when I was there visiting, but I did get a chance in one day. We started in right outside of Newport, Rhode Island, drove through Connecticut into Massachusetts for a concert and then back in the same day. Yeah. Very easy, very fast to get to, but I have heard that you can take a train very easily to some of these bigger cities, especially Boston. Um, that's on my list for next time I visit Rhode Island, but it's just gorgeous. It kind of, I understand that the water in the shoreline is different, but I actually like to compare it to Michigan yeah. in that if, if you want it, it's right there. You can yeah. have city, you can have, you know, country quiet. You have height. I mean, the mountains are a lot better out in Rhode Island than Michigan, but I mean, you just have as much nature or city that you want access to. Absolutely. Yeah. Growing up in northern Michigan, right on Lake Michigan, basically, I'm used to big bodies of water. And so coming to Rhode Island, it does have that same exact feel. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, visually, does it does it feel that different? Not really. I mean, it's a lot more populated Rhode Island than northern Michigan. But that's nice because you have all the resources, the Providence Mall. Providence Place, I believe is what it's called. Really, really cool mall, obviously during non-COVID times to check out, but it's, you have so many resources of things to do. And I think it's anything that you're into. If you're a city person, you've got Providence. If you're a nature person, you've got the coast and you're not that far from Vermont, New Hampshire and things like that. And it's super accessible in terms of trains and, and driving. 
Yeah, and uh, and that's not even to speak that much about the surrounding areas. Like New Haven isn't that far. This the other weekend, my partner and I went down to New Haven for pizza. I don't know if you know, but like New Haven is like pizza capital of the world, and so we went down to check out pizza and walk around well, Yale and things Haven like that. When I visit is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're into pizza, uh, New England is it's got some great pizza, definitely. And one thing too that I I found really neat. Um, it's a mutual friend of Cody, of both of ours. And when I was visiting, if you are a history buff, this is like the place to go. If you're into like ghost tours and scary things, <laughs> I don't want to scare anybody away because it's not, I mean, you have to like try and find it or know somebody who knows about it, but it's just a really neat thing to learn about. It was kind oh, of like absolutely. when I went to New Orleans, I could find out about all of this, all of this history and all of this obscure history that I didn't know happened. And I found a lot of that actually in Rhode Island and when we drove through Connecticut as well. But absolutely. Yeah. It's not like the same architecture or history, but it does have a, a feel of like the French Quarter, New Orleans, where like these big historic, beautiful mansions and the history that comes along with that. Right. And I'm, I'm a a hundred percent, a history geek. Everybody who knows me well knows this about me. And so I've just had a field day out here getting to check out different historic sites. And it's, it's a lot of fun to, to be able to experience. And I know we could probably talk about this all day and I could ask you about where I need to visit out there, which the list would be never ending. But um, how about the application process? I know you mentioned the cohort model, but what, you know, what does the, and I know COVID probably has taken a toll on maybe some of this, but what does the application process look like? And if there are interviews, what does that look like as well? So the application process has really been streamlined by the, by the graduate college and the administration here at Solvay. They've really set up, I think, a, a very easy process to apply. Ultimately, we're looking at, uh, you know, needing two letters of recommendation, personal statement, all the things you can kind of expect to be required in a, in a graduate school application. As far as like criteria, we're looking for people who have obviously demonstrated the ability to handle graduate school rigor. And we're looking for people who understand what behavior analysis is in terms of, do you understand what your career is going to look like? Do you understand and have the skills to be able to, to enter a graduate level behavior analytic content sort of setup. And so those are the things we're looking for. for. In terms of like deadlines and things like that, we have a, a few different deadlines that would depend on the, you know, when you would want to enter the program and the type of student you are. But our primary application window is from February 15th to July 1st. And basically what that application window means is that in February, at February 15th, I begin or the team begins looking at applications. And we might fill up our seats bef well before July 1st. Or we might, you know, be able to continue looking at applications to that deadline. And then in which case that would sort of close that window of applications. And so people are interested in the program. It, it, it's important to try to apply as early in that application window, if not before that application window as possible, to give yourself the best 
chance of, of getting into the program? So technically the application is currently open. It yeah. is currently open. We are still accepting applications. And so if you're listening to this and considering the program, absolutely submit an application um, as quickly as you can, really. It's going to be beneficial to have it in as early as possible. And I know that this is something I always just ask is it would, would you be the person to contact if anybody has questions regarding that? Yeah, for sure. So anyone can, can reach out to me. I'm sure we can put my email somewhere, but it's just Cody. So C O D Y dot Morris M O R R I S at solve.edu. Yep. And I will definitely, that will be in the podcast description along with a link to the page for the program as well. Yes, we've covered general overview, faculty, practicums, area, application, and interview process. How about, is there anything else that you want to make sure that potential students know about the program? We've sort of spoken about this a little before, but I think to understand the ABA program, you have to begin to understand Salve Regina University as an institution. And Salve Regina is a, is a mercy institution, so it was founded by the Sisters of Mercy. And they have uh, a number of, of values that I think are, are central to, to the university. One of the primary values is the, the need to serve people in need. And this is permeated and, and obvious and on display basically every aspect of the university. But you can imagine how a university who values serving people in need and, a, and their central sort of focus is mercy really, really aligns extremely well with the practice of behavior analysis, considering we serve typically the most uh, under or the most underserved vulnerable populations you can imagine. And so because we're, we're housed in an institution that values serving people in need, I think it, it adds a layer of compassion and understanding and sort of value-driven behavior that I think is, is unique and is something we're certainly very proud of. And I think that that's really important to point out because like I said, I, you know, I've gotten to visit, I've seen the campus, but it was for different reasons. And I know that our mutual friend who ended up going there for in, into a completely different program, but that was one of the reasons that she decided to go there was because of not only the program that she found, but also just the school's history as well. And so I was really excited that you know, when I learned about the program and that you were now running it as well, I was like, I'm very excited to actually learn more about the specific program because this was a really cool, it's a really cool university in general. And it's, it's for me, it's nice knowing who's in charge of it and knowing what their background is to be like, okay, no, Cody and whoever, you know, is helping Cody there is going to do some really cool stuff. So, um, but yeah, if you don't have anything else, I mean, thank you so much. Yeah, again, thank you. I mean, phenomenal resource, really great idea. 
I don't know how you came up with this idea. When when I saw your podcast, I was like, oh my goodness, like it seems like such an obvious thing that should be out there. But wow, a great idea, really great resource for the field. And this obviously ties into trying to disseminate our field and to help meet people where they're at and to help them learn about behavior analysis. So thank you for your work on that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the University Series. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.